Lord, as we saw, we're reminded of earlier, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So Lord, would you please work now through your Word to strengthen faith, so that we might go out and be pleasing and honorable to you in all that we do and say in this week ahead. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, where do you go when you need power? Yesterday, David and I needed to run a table saw, but it won't work without power. I mean, we could sit there and try and spin that blade, but uh, we're not strong enough to spin it fast enough to cut through wood. We need power. So we had to get an extension cord, and we had to find a plug. And we had everything we needed. We had the tools. We had the supplies. David had the know-how. But we need the power so we could do it. So where do you go when you need power in your life? I don't now mean electrical power, but perhaps power for healing, power for change, power for solutions and answers. And does the thing or person or place that has the power, do they even care to help? Well, let's read Ephesians 3. Because in our passage today, we're shown the one who has power and who wants to help. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, God's word says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and the breadth and length and height, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Men. So our emphasis in the passage today is pray to the all-powerful, all-loving God. If you have a bulletin, you'll see that we're going to first focus on the first part of verse 20, far more than we ask or think. And then the second half of verse 20, far greater than we realize. Now, if you're familiar with reading through the New Testament, this doxology sounds like the ending of a prayer or a letter. The letter to the Romans ends this way with Romans 16.25. Now to him, just like verse 20, now to him. Romans 16.25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Or the book of Jude ends. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And Paul gives a similar doxology here. But not to end the letter. Rather, this ends his prayer for them and transitions to the second part of the letter. And there's an assumed premise that Paul does not state, but is shown throughout his letter. 
And that premise is that God is actively engaged in the world and our lives. You know, he's not an owner in the suites, sitting up there thinking, I've paid for the team, I bought the stadium, and now I just sit back and they do it all while I enjoy. Now, he's not like Zeus or Ra or some other so-called God who might be paying attention, but then again might not. No, God is actively involved in every single aspect of life. Implied through this is the wonderful truth that God hears and wants to hear our prayers. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you have to cast your burdens, I guess I'm as good a place as anywhere else. No, he calls to us and says, cast your burdens and anxieties on me because I care for you. How many people do we want to hear? So we want them to care about us. And yet, the more we go to them, the more they say, will you just leave me alone? God wants us to call upon Him. Not only does God want to hear our prayers, but He has the power to do something about them. He is able to do far more than we ask or think. Or in other words, He is omnipotent, omni, all, potent power. God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17, All Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your stretched, outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Or Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, we've been very careful when we discuss this to point out that this doesn't mean that God could do anything. Rather, it means God can do all his holy will. God being omnipotent does not mean God can do anything our mind could possibly conceive of. God even clearly reveals there are things he can't do. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Earlier, Philip read for us 2 Kings 3, where the king of Judah and the king of Israel march out to battle against Moab, and the fear of every military happened to them. That is, they were going to lose, not because they had worse strategy or worse weapons, they were going to lose because they didn't take care of the most basic thing, their provisions. And they're about to run out of water and they're afraid. And so what do they do? They call out to God and Elisha the prophet comes and he tells them this amazing promise. Look, you're in the wilderness without water. Well, when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be so much water that even the cattle will drink their fill. But not only that, you're going to go and destroy Moab. And the unthinkable happens. God can do more than we ask or think. And God loves to work in such a way that he alone can be seen as the Savior. Turn in your Bible, keep your place in Ephesians, but turn back to Exodus chapter 14. So Exodus 14, this is after Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They've been delivered for slavery, and God had them march so that they are now next to the Red Sea. Notice what happens. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done? We've let Israel go from serving us? 
So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camp by the sea, by Pi, Hiroth, in front of Baal, Zephon. So Pharaoh regrets his decision, and he swiftly deploys the troops. Yet, I mean, Israel, what do they have to fear? They've just seen ten mighty plagues. They've just seen the gods of Egypt demolished, destroyed. And yet notice their response, verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the wilderness. So they start out with sarcastically questioning Moses. Look, are there no graves in Egypt? And then they quickly move to accusation. They even say, look, we wish we were slaves again. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, that wonderful time back when we were getting beat every day, when they were making us kill our boys when they were born, and we were working as slaves. That was wonderful. So why'd you bring us out here? You know, they're not trusting the God who can do more than they can ask or think. They're trusting a God who can only do what they consider possible. And that surely is not delivering them from the Egyptian army. But notice Moses' reply, verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Now it's interesting Moses has the same set of information as the Israelites. He sees the same Egyptian chariots. He sees the same Red Sea. It's not like they have two different sets of facts. Rather, Moses interprets them differently because he knows God is not absent nor uncaring. Moses knows and trusts God's power and care, so he does not fear now we know the rest of the story. God parts the sea, the Israelites march through on dry ground, then he allows the Egyptian army to come through, and he closes the water, so they all die. And look at how it ends in verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. We could go through many, many other Old Testament stories. Gideon and his 300 men, David and Goliath, Elisha and his city surrounded by forces, Esther and the decree to destroy the Jews and more. Each one of them reminding us that God's power is beyond what we can ask or think. And God has given us his word and each other to remember his power that can do far more than we ask or think. Yet the problem is not our lack of stories, true stories, but it's that we're like Israel at the Red Sea. 
We have plenty of evidence, but a lack of faith. Friends, there is no situation in your life which is too big for God's power. And there is no situation that is too small for God's concern. God cares about the biggest and the smallest. God cares and God controls. Our circumstances and situation are not bigger than Him. Yet I know the unbelief in our hearts and also the skepticism. And some of you might be thinking, but I've been asking for the same good thing for years. Not just like once. I've been asking, and it's not actually beyond what I could ask or think. It's a pretty askable request. And you haven't answered. And perhaps even more accusatorily, well, if God has so much power, then why are loved ones dying of cancer? Why are people losing their ability to remember? Why are people rebelling against God? God, if you have the power, then why aren't you working? Well, we have to see the next section, so flip back to Ephesians chapter 3, because there we need to consider that God is far greater than we realize. Let me read verse 20 again of Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. What is the power at work within us? Well, he told us back in chapter 1, flip back chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He's praying that we might know these various things. In verse 19, he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So what is this power? According to, same thing, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at its right hand in the heavenly places. God's power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul could have mentioned many things to describe God's power. For example, speaking a universe into existence. That's a lot of power. Yet he chose the resurrection because the resurrection shows Jesus conquering death, defeating sin, and becoming the first fruits of a perfect eternity for those who trust him. There can be no greater power than life over death. You know, we get excited as a society when we have a new cure for something that we thought was uncurable. If you follow the news, you may remember a couple months ago there was a buzz because now science has had a breakthrough in nuclear fusion. We hope that in years to come we'll have almost limitless clean energy. And yet whether it's curing a new disease or lasting energy, that is merely sustaining life. It is not resurrecting life. Science cannot bring life from death. No one has even suggested that as being a possibility. And yet, the resurrection power shows us much more than just God is powerful and great, though that's true. It shows us that God loves us far greater than we realize. Consider, why is there even a resurrection at all? It's because of what is explained in John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God giving his son was so that Jesus would perish, that he would die in our place for the judgment we deserve for our sin. And it was God's love that sent him to die and rise again. There's no need for God to save us. He has existed for all eternity without any needs, lacks, or deficiencies. Yet he has desired to reveal himself, his love, his justice, his patience, his grace, and all his manifold glory. And so the resurrection shows us both God's power and love. And if we know both of these, God's power and his love, we'll find comfort and solace in the storms of life. And yet sometimes we doubt what God is like. We see this played out in the lives of Jesus' disciples. Keep your finger again in Ephesians 3 and flip back to Mark chapter 4. A well-known story. A story told in every single gospel. Mark chapter 4 and we'll look at verses 35 through 41. Mark 4 beginning in verse 35 it says, On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking to the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, what's going on here is Jesus and his disciples, they've just finished a long day of ministry, if you read what happened before this, day of ministry, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee at night. And since Jesus was fully human, he got tired. He needed rest. And so he goes and he falls asleep on the cushion. And the Sea of Galilee was known for storms coming across. And this one comes bringing such fierceness that it leads even these fishermen to panic and fear with thoughts that this might be our last night on the sea. We will be capsized and die. And so let's turn to Jesus. And Jesus is over there sleeping like a baby. And they awaken him with an accusation. Don't you care that we're being destroyed? You know, the accusation calls into question Jesus' care and love for his disciples. So Jesus awoke, and then he rebuked the wind and commanded the sea. Amazingly, the winds stopped instantly, and the sea became calm as glass. You know, we have the wind storms that come through here in North Texas, and eventually the storms end, but it's never like windstorm done. It slowly goes away. But these winds stopped instantaneously. You may remember being a child or having your children, having a little too much fun in the bathtub. The door opens and someone says, Stop splashing the water everywhere! And with a guilty look, they stop, and yet the water still goes... The water doesn't just go calm as glass. And yet, when Jesus commands, there's an immediate calm. 
And after confronting the weather, Jesus then turns to confront his doubting disciples. And he challenges them with a question. Why are you afraid? Do you not have faith? And we need to be clear here that the issue is not that they were nervous, but rather that they challenged Jesus' care. You know, we can be more spiritual than the Bible is. The Bible never tells us not to be concerned about anything. It never tells us you shouldn't actually be troubled about what might happen. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was betrayed, he was concerned. He was crying out. He knew what was coming, and he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, will you take this from me? Yet, in that, he didn't accuse God as though the road ahead showed God's lack of care. Yes, Philippians 4, 6 does say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But it's interesting, the same person who wrote that, Paul, also writes this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, is this here, Paul, like confessing sin? I'm anxious for the churches? No, I don't think it's him confessing sin. Rather, I think we, by seeing both of these verses, understand what he means in Philippians 4, 6. When he says in Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious for anything, I don't think he's saying you should never have any concern about the future. Rather, he's saying, when you are anxious, don't stay there. Because what does he say next in Philippians? But, so contrast, in everything, in those anxieties even, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or Peter says it this way, cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And so, as a Christian, when those anxieties arise, you don't need to feel sinful because of those. It's what do you do in response to them? Do you harbor them and dwell on them? Or do you take those as they come and do you cast them, throw them on the Lord who cares for you? And that is the issue with the disciples. For not only did they bring their anxiety to Jesus, but they brought their accusation. Don't you care for us? You know, they're probably taken aback when Jesus comes back at them. You know, they well, what do you mean? Well, it's pretty understandable why we're afraid. Did you not realize the storm? But their accusation revealed, really, that they weren't trusting Jesus' care for them. Now, notice here how this broadens our understanding of what faith is. Often when people talk about faith, they think, well, faith means you trust that Jesus died for your sins. Well, yes, that's true, and you should believe that. But it's more than that, because here, Jesus' trust is that they would trust him with their lives. That in all circumstances, whether they're on the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, or whether they're on the shore or their deathbed, no matter where it is, that they will entrust themselves to the one who controls and cares. You know, that they can cast their anxieties on him because he cares for them. And rather than being filled with the fear of their circumstances, they should trust God who goes with them and us through life's storms. But it's interesting because it says the disciples grew in more fear and they say to one another, who then is this that even he commands the wind and the water and they obey him? You know, the word there is phobos. You've probably heard that word before for fear. Arachnophobia. 
fear of spiders. Xenophobia, fear of strangers. Well, this is Jesus-phobia, fear of Jesus. Not only do they fear, but they wonder, who is this? Who is this type of being that controls the weather? He just speaks, and nature obeys him. R.C. Sproul writes, Sigmund Freud once espoused the theory that men invent religion out of a fear of nature. Men feel helpless before an earthquake, a flood, or a ravaging disease. So the theory goes, we invent God to help us deal with these scary things. But what is significant about Jesus calming the storm is that the disciples' fear increased after the threat of the storm was removed. The storm made them afraid. Jesus' action to the still the storm made them more afraid. You know, in the power of Christ, they met something more frightening than they ever met in nature. They were in the presence of the Holy One. We wonder what Freud would have said about that. Why would man invent a God whose holiness was more terrifying than the forces of nature that provoked them to invent a God in the first place? You know, we can trust Him. He has more power than we can ask or think. But not just more power, more love. And the amazing thing is that in love, God sent his son not only to give us safety from the storms of life, but ultimately safety from his own just judgment. Jesus died for us so that our judgment fell on him and not us. You know, this truth then compels us to apply our faith to all aspects of our life. If you look at early Christian art, whether that's in catacombs or in homes, a common scene is the church depicted as a boat. And if you look at it, you'll see that as the storms swirl around them, Jesus is in the boat. As they faced persecution and the other storms of life, they knew they were safe with Jesus guiding their ship. You know, he never promised to take the storms away, but rather to guide us and be with us so that our fears can be taken off the storm and our eyes be on Him. And God wants His people to trust Him and show that trust, we're being told here, by praying to Him. And in that, we must recognize Ephesians three fourteen through 21 is written to believers, not generic people. You know, it's true that since God knows everything, He hears in one sense everyone's prayers. But it's not true that He hears all prayers in the same way way. In fact, the Bible is clear that God does not regard the prayers of unbelievers. You may have heard earlier when Philip was reading 2 Kings 3, we mentioned the story where the king of Judah, king of Israel are out and they're out of water and they get Elisha. And when Elisha comes, Elisha tells them, well, God says he has no regard for the king of Israel and he would not listen to him, but he'll listen to Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Or Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, contrast, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 138, 6, For the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So the solution is not, well, okay, I've got to start becoming religious and God will hear me. No, it's to humble ourselves, to admit our sin and turn in faith to Christ. You know, God's love is so great for us, that he's jealous for us to love him. 
not just to turn him as turn to him as a genie power who can do really powerful stuff when we want him around. As some of y'all know David Graham, as I've mentioned him over time, he's a field minister out at All Red Prison, so he is an inmate there. And then while he was in prison, he was able to get his seminary degree, and now he serves as like a pastor or minister to the other prisoners. Well, I met with him this last week, and he was telling me that there is a man in maximum security who the guards were nervous about. They were nervous because this inmate is known for violence. He's known for getting angry and lashing out. And he had just heard that his father had died. So they called David. David, we want you to come talk to this guy because we don't know what he's going to do. David went in and talked with him. They had a talk for two hours, he told me. And as they were talking, the man told David, well, I don't believe in God. But I did start to pray to God because I'm in maximum security and I wanted to go down one level so I could call my dad and talk to him one last time before he died. And you know what? He didn't get to do it. And David's a much braver man than I. David told him, God is a jealous God. And God wants you to love him more than just giving you the ability to talk to your dad one last time. God wants all of you, not just a part that comes to him when you got some request you want. God wants your whole life to be calling out to him, trusting him. You know, David conveyed something that is true, that God is a better father, and he wants so much more for us than we want for ourselves. And God desires us to humble ourselves. And look, there's no reason that God should hear us except his amazing grace and love, and in that, that he would answer our prayers. And that really brings us back to our question. For if God has power beyond what we can ask or think, then why are loved ones dying of cancer? Why are people losing their ability to remember and rebelling? And this is because God's kindness is far greater than we realize. And that might, statement might strike you as the opposite of the truth. But sometimes we have to go back to the basics. You know, as our creator, God has the right to tell us what to do. We've rebelled against that by our actions and our attitudes. And so the punishment we deserve for that is death. Immediate death. Thus that God allows us to live at all is a kindness. And that he allows us to live is so that we might have time to repent. Romans 2, 3-5 says it this way. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God does care about the cancer. God does care about your loved one losing their memory. He does care about suffering, and he came to remove that. And one day it will all be removed. Yet though Jesus purchased that through his death, it will not be that way until he returns. And when he returns, it will be done away. But for Jesus to remove all cancer, all seizures, all suffering now, would be the end of the opportunity for salvation. And God's character is far greater than we realize. Thus, in his kindness and love, he allows suffering while withholding the greater judgment 
we deserve. Those of you who are familiar with C.S. Lewis know that he was alive during World War I and World War II. And in that, he was, people wrote to him, well, why is God allowing this? What's going on? And people were often thinking, look, this is the forces of Satan winning darkness. This is causing people to die. And yet Lewis thought the opposite was true. In fact, war often serves the purposes of God. Because when people face war, they have to come face to face with the reality that, you know what? We're not going to live forever. It's appointed for each of us to die and then face the judgment. Lewis writes, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we see from God's word and God's interactions in the world that God also chooses to work in response to prayer. It was noon on September 23rd, 1857, that Jeremiah Lanfear climbed creaky old stairs to the third story of an old church building in the lower heart of New York City. He entered an empty room, pulled out his pocket watch, and sat down to wait. He had put in front of his church a couple weeks a placard that read, Prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop by for 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole hour, as your time admits. Well, it looked like no one had the time. As the minutes ticked by, Jeremiah wondered if it was all a mistake. The minute hand out of his watch pointed to 12.30, when at last he heard a step on the stairs. One man came in, then another, and another, until there were six. And after a few minutes of prayer, the meeting was dismissed with the decision that another meeting would be held the following Wednesday. Now that small meeting was in no way extraordinary. There was no great outpouring of the Spirit of God. And Lamphere had no way of knowing that that was the beginning of a great national revival which would sweep an estimated one million people into the kingdom of God. If you've never heard about or read about the New York Prayer Revival of 1857, it is well worth your time. When the revival was at its high tide, about 50,000 people a week were being saved. And how did it begin? One man deciding to set up a meeting to pray. We have not because we ask not. You know, we can look around at our culture and be dismayed. We can no longer tell the difference between a boy or a girl. We celebrate sexual perversion. Our leaders regularly lie and no one bats an eye. Churches are more influenced by the world than the world influencing the church. And yet, rather than wringing our hands, let us go down on our knees. Here we've looked at the Israelites at the Red Sea. The armies of Judah and Israel facing certain death by drought by lack of water in the wilderness. We've looked at disciples in a stormy boat. And what did they do each time? What was the solution? They turned to God. We mentioned Gideon, Elisha, David, Esther. What was each of their response in their dire situation? They cried out to God in prayer. We serve a God who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He may or may not choose to answer our prayers as we deem. He's not our genie. He's even better. He's 
our Father. Thus, let us pray to the all-powerful, all-loving God. Let's do that right now. Oh, Lord, may we know this. Lord, it is so easy to talk about these things in a setting like this and then go out and just be overwhelmed with our anxieties. Lord, it is easy to feel that nothing will ever change, that the situations of our life are just stuck and that there really is no hope. And yet, Lord, you are all-powerful, you are all-loving, so may we, when those anxieties stir up, may we cast them on you, knowing you care for us, that you have the power to bring change. Oh, Lord, help us to have the faith that leads us to (coughs) lives that honor you and that will be faithful to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.